Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Hello, hello. It is Thursday, February 8th. The Supreme Court heard the arguments today from the state of Colorado, which wanted uh, to remove Donald Trump from their presidential primary ballots. And uh, while we don't know when we will get an official decision, Supreme Court watchers who say that by the tone and the tenor of their questioning, you can get a feel for which way they're going. Uh, everybody is predicting that this is going to go down, that the Supreme Court is going to say, no, this is a matter who's on the ballot for especially for federal office is a federal matter, not a state matter. Therefore, the states do not have the right to make a decision uh, based on the 14th Amendment to take somebody off their ballot. That is honestly not a huge surprise. I know, I know over the last few days, you have heard legal expert after legal expert after legal expert saying that the law is clear, precedent is clear, this is just what the 14th Amendment um, was designed for. Mm. But this was always a long shot, frankly. Uh, this was, I, I didn't think this was ever the hill that the Supreme Court was going to die on. Absolutely, absolutely, positively no. <clears throat> and uh, that's, that's the way the court watchers see it, too. One of the Supreme Court reporters who was being interviewed on CNN today said that halfway through the proceedings... Halfway through the proceedings, a lot of the reporters left. That isn't because they had somewhere better to be. That was because they felt they'd seen enough. It isn't always a lock, but the, um, the vast majority of the time, people who are really familiar with the court and the way they question um, lawyers, the way they question one another... Oftentimes, they tip their hand, and um, the feeling was hand-tipped on this, absolutely hand-tipped. Um, this, this one's going down. This is not what we're going to pin our hopes on. And frankly, I have mixed emotions about it. On the one hand, the 14th Amendment is pretty clear, and it's in our Constitution, and, you know, you can't just pick and choose. I'm going to follow this part of the Constitution and not follow that part of the Constitution. That's not how it works. But this was always a stretch. First and foremost, you have to decide. Now, remember, Donald Trump has not gone on trial in Washington, D.C. It's not like he has been convicted of insurrection. So how do you establish whether or not he is an insurrectionist? There were there were some gray areas here, frankly. And um, this was always going to be a long shot. Despite what you heard from all the legal experts, this was not something to pin your hopes on. 
Now, the other question, the question of presidential immunity, now that is a different kettle of fish. That, remember, uh, Donald Trump appealed to the uh, uh, the appeals circuit in D.C., and after pondering his claims for a few weeks, they came out with a unanimous decision. A unanimous decision that this was just absurd on the face of it. I mean, if you say a president is immune all the time, you are basically creating someone who is not not only not susceptible to the rule of law, not susceptible to Supreme Court or court rulings. Um, you create someone who is out of the bounds. And uh, that is going to be a much bigger deal. Um, Jamie Raskin was on MSNBC talking with Alex Wagner about this whole issue of Donald Trump requesting immunity. And he really laid out the stakes very clearly of what this would mean if somehow uh, the Supreme Court reversed this unanimous decision by the D.C. Court of Appeals. Listen to Jamie Raskin on this. There's a beautiful moment at the end of the opinion when the three judges, uh, two Democratic appointees, one Republican appointee, unanimously say that essentially were we to buy Donald Trump's arguments, no branch of government could contain and control a president who wants to become an autocratic dictator. The legislature would not be able to pass any laws that could control him because he couldn't be prosecuted for anything unless first impeached or convicted. The executive branch in the form of the Department of Justice and prosecutors couldn't control him because he's got absolute immunity, according to Trump. And the court couldn't uh, do anything to control him because uh, Trump asserts that that would be a violation of the separation of powers. So it's a three-card Monty. No, no matter what you turn, nobody can ever hold Donald Trump accountable. And so this completely perverse and absurd constitutional argument that cuts against two centuries of our history really flows out of the warped psychology of this man who probably began as a boy who got his way at every possible turn, like uh, Little Richie Rich, the comic book I used to uh, read sometimes <laughs> when I was a kid uh, with the Archies. You know, you could never tell Richie Rich he couldn't do anything uh, that he didn't want to do. Um, and, um, you know, in the end, though, he was always upended. And I hope in the end, um, the constitutional patriots in America will stand Donald Trump down. And I got to tell you, today was a great day from that perspective, because you could read that opinion and you could remember what America was like, what real judges are like and what American jurisprudence really stands for. What real judges are like and what American jurisprudence really stands for. Ah, the good, the good old days. We have a caller who wants to talk about the Supreme Court. Richard is calling in from Chicago. Hey, Richard, go ahead. You're on the air. Hi. Hi. Yeah, I was thinking. That, yeah, hi, hi. Um, I hope I have this right. I mean, there, this ruling that this, it's a, the election is sort of federally controlled. Well, there is a precedence, I guess. I actually had it the other way around. 
but they decided that Florida couldn't recount their votes. You see, and so that, that if they're setting that as the precedent for this, but otherwise the states have uh, their own rules. Uh, even the electoral college, there aren't uniform federal rules about what a an elector will have to do. Uh, so that particular argument to me, uh, and again, states' rights, you know, which is, mm-hmm. you know, they're, they're, yeah. they're, and I mentioned that because you know? one of the justices, and I think it was one of the uh, more democratic justices, I think it was Elena Kagan, asked one of the lawyers, like, you know, you know, the lawyer from Colorado, like, why do you think you can bring this case? You know, this is a federal election. Why do you? Th- and so a lot of people took that to mean that that was going to be one of the things that they used to shoot it down. We don't know that, but that's. Yeah. yeah. Well, I hope it's not un- uh, unanimous. I mean, the European court, everything is unanimous. America has dissenters and very often the dissent. Uh, 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 to a, a ruling actually influence a future reversal. So I hope the heck that they all, uh, are, you know, out of fear or wanting to look uh, omnipotent, uh, don't all you know, fall in line. I hope that there are some hmm. people who dissent. Uh, but uh, uh, so you know, I, I do just I just think these people are stretching that that you know they have a preconceived. You know, Jefferson Davis could run. Right. Robert E. Lee, if they were alive, could now run for president. I mean, by the standards, I think that they're using to say yeah. that you can't. Well, that's actually uh, one of the well. arguments that uh, some of the lawyers are using against this move by Colorado. And they're saying that the 14th Amendment was specifically created to deal with uh, Civil War era traitors and that to um, bring it into modern life is uh, is a stretch that wasn't intended. So they're using that very argument you've just made in the opposite way. Yeah, but they could say that. They could have said that. Oh, okay, cool. Oh, I think um, I think we're losing your connection, uh, Richard. But I I understand the point you're making. You know, I'm not saying that if I were on the Supreme Court, um, I would be so quick to dismiss the Fourteenth Amendment. Um, but I'm saying that on the basis of the way the judges acted today, the way they talked to the lawyers, the questions they ask, uh, people who are much more steeped in the Supreme Court and how they work than me have taken what they saw to mean that the Supreme Court is not going to support Colorado's effort to keep Donald Trump off of the ballot because of um, because of the 14th Amendment, because of his uh, connection with leading of instigating of being involved in insurrection. So we'll see when we uh, when we get that particular decision. And the other thing that I think is much more important, as I was saying a minute ago, is going to be this whole idea of the D.C. Court of Appeals unanimously and firmly and clearly telling Donald Trump that he has no immunity, that he is a person just like other people in the United States. And um, he has no immunity. Now, Donald Trump has um, already sort of asked whether or not the Supreme Court would consider uh, hearing this, we will find out, hopefully within a matter of days, if they're going to pick this up, if they're smart. I think they will duck out on this. 
The Court of Appeals ruling was clear. It was well-reasoned. It was emphatic. It left no wiggle room in any way, shape, or form. I've said before, it is a lose-lose situation for the Supreme Court to take up this question of presidential immunity. And I shared with you a few minutes ago what Jamie Raskin, the Congressman Jamie Raskin, said about the implications if for some reason somebody decides to give Donald Trump immunity. Um, the other side of that coin, Neil Katyal is a legal analyst and contributor for MSNBC. And what he said recently is that if you really look at this, what Donald Trump is saying, because he said it publicly. Remember, he said, I, I'm just not doing this for me. I'm doing this for Joe Biden, even and all the presidents who will come after me because, you know, you can't make a decision if you think people are going to, you know, um, take you to court and find you guilty. And Neil Katyal was saying, let's let's look at this. He is what Donald Trump is saying is that he cannot imagine a president who doesn't commit crimes. This has not been an issue for this country. And what happened last time when it looked like Richard Nixon had been involved in a crime? He resigned because he was going to be removed from office. That doesn't sound like immunity to me. But Donald, what Donald Trump is arguing is that it's not just me who's a criminal. Everybody's a criminal. Don't you understand that? All presidents are criminals. So that's the premise. And therefore, presidents won't make any decisions if they know they'll be held legally responsible for crimes they commit. Listen to um, Neil Katyal on MSNBC explaining this. Trump's best argument, and we'll see it, I'm sure, next week, is he's going to say, look, if presidents aren't absolutely immune, every president is going to be indicted when they leave office. Now, of course, that's never happened before. And as the Court of Appeals pointed out today, like we've gone through 45 presidents, none of them thought they needed to be absolutely immune. Trump's the first. And indeed, it's itself an indictment of Trump that his claim here, like Trump can't even imagine a presidential administration that could function without leaving evidence of a crime, which, you know, says a lot about the way he governs. It says very little about the way any other presidential administration governs. Just to take one example, you know, I worked in the Obama administration. I never heard of an example of anyone having to lawyer up from the president to someone who worked uh -huh. at the White House right. counsel's office or whatever. In the Trump administration, you needed to not just have a lawyer, that lawyer needed to hire a lawyer to represent the lawyer who is representing the person in the White House. Yeah, got that. Got that. And why lawyers continue to work for him is um, is just beyond belief. Uh, Steve is is on the phone to, to talk to us about this ruling. Go ahead, Steve. Yes, and, and I predict, you know, whatever we uh, we see come out of the court, it will be narrowly tailored, which is a way to get around the fact that, you know, basically we're taking a position that is antithetical to what conservatives would believe, which is that states should have the ultimate say in terms of how they govern their elections and everything else. So just as in uh, Gore v. Bush, you know, very narrowly tailored. Well, this will be narrowly tailored as well. Don't read. Uh, it says we've lost. We've lost Steve again. Um, um, yes, I think I think Steve makes two good points. 
And um, he makes the point that, yes, this looks like this is the way the Supreme Court is going to rule. And how are they going to cover their butts? The Supreme Court has an option when it issues a decision in the way that it writes up that decision. They can kind of say, well, yeah, um, we're we don't think he should be taken off the ballot in Colorado. But this is just a, a decision that applies right here, right now to Colorado. That's what that's what Steve was saying. That's how they can cover their butt. Like, oh, no, we're not saying that the 14th Amendment uh, doesn't come in to play. We're, oh, no, we're not saying that at all. Um, we're just saying that in this particular case, the people in Colorado, either the way they argued it or the way they wrote it or the way they reasoned it, that the, just this one instance, in just this one instance, we're going to say no. Now, the problem with that is that uh, Maine has also made this effort to remove Trump from the primary ballot. So that would be the only reason why they would have to expand this decision is if they if they narrow it so tightly that it just applies to Colorado. Well, that means that if the state of Maine wants to do this, then they have to hear that case all over again. See what I see what I'm saying? Um, So. We shall see. Uh, I think the decision of whether or not they should hear the case on immunity is much more impactful than uh, the 14th Amendment case. The 14th Amendment case was always, I think, um, a long shot. And indeed, the way the justices have talked about it today, I wouldn't... um, I wouldn't put your apples in that particular basket. Now, um, the Supreme Court in the immunity case, they have a lot of different options. They can just, and what they, what I hope they do, they can just say, you know what? This has been adequately adjudicated by the uh, appellate court in D.C. We don't need to weigh in here. Over and done. Or they could potentially delay this. And that's what Donald Trump really wants. Remember, all of these repeated appeals, all of these repeated court actions are designed to drag this out. Donald Trump is praying that he becomes president and the Florida case and the D.C. case will disappear. He will be in charge of the DOJ. He will make sure that these cases come to a very quick end and that they just go away. He doesn't have quite that power over states, but that's that's where the gray area is here. Um, Harvard law expert Lawrence Tribe was talking to Lawrence O'Donnell on MSNBC and talked about some of the options in this immunity case that the Supreme Court has before it and how some of them are not good for the American people. Listen to Lawrence Tribe. I agree that it's unlikely the court will hear the case. And in an ordinary world, it would have no reason to hear it. There was no serious argument. The 
decision is bulletproof. There's no basis for thinking it would ever be reversed. And yet, if there are five votes on this court to delay and thereby create the possibility that he won't be tried before the election, if there are five votes to do that, there will be a stay. I don't think it'll happen. But what does it say about the current Supreme Court and its eagerness to get its hands on everything, to have the last word on everything, that we aren't sure? What does it say that we have to wait till Monday, watch to see if a stay is granted, if the court were performing its functions in general as well as these three judges did, we wouldn't worry for a moment. We would know that the court would give the back of its hand to any request for a stay. But it is the very fact that we don't know and the very fact that tens of millions of our fellow citizens find appealing the idea of someone who says, I couldn't do my job if I had to worry about whether I was committing a crime. The fact that we have millions of people who imagine putting that person into power, that scares me and it upsets me. And that's one of the things that moved me as I read this. I thought, here on the one hand, we have real law, and on the other hand, we have utter lawlessness, chaos, narcissism, selfishness, and a country that just might put that back into power. Amen to that, Lawrence Tribe. One of the things that I'm going to be uh, trying to keep an eye on today, on my little C-SPAN tab, we know that the bill, the supplemental aid bill that had money for the border and some border changes and money for Israel and Ukraine and the Indo-Pacific region, which is money for Taiwan, that um, went down to defeat. Didn't even get to the House where Mike Johnson said <laughs> it's gonna, it would be dead on arrival anyway. So um, Chuck Schumer had a plan B ready. And that is to put together a supplemental funding bill that is simply foreign aid to Israel, Ukraine, and Taiwan. You guys ask for the border stuff, we gave it to you. Now you don't want the border stuff, we'll take it away. But this foreign aid bill needs to get passed. So Chuck Schumer had that ready as plan B. And uh, right now on the floor of the Senate, they are... Debate. Uh, it's the Senate. They're debating the motion to proceed. And then they'll um, assuming they proceed, they will start debating the bill itself. OK. In other words, everybody's talking. Everybody's talking. Um, we will keep an eye on this. Would be nice. Uh, sometimes um, the debate on the motion to proceed is uh, time limited. It is a little unclear from what I'm seeing on C-SPAN whether or not that is the case. And if it is the case, what the time limit is. So I've just been watching this. So you don't have to. And I'm going to keep an eye on it um, because this is it. This is the last gasp. And even if um, even if the Senate votes it out, what's the House going to do with it? You know, everybody's getting ready to go home again. I know, it just seems like they were home because they were. 
but they're getting ready to go home again. So we'll see. We shall see what happens and whether or not it happens in what normal people consider a timely, a timely manner. (sighs) We are going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to tell you about a new book called Hit Him Where It Hurts. We'll be back with that and more right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. On WCPT 820. Political strategist Rachel Bittacoffer has a new book out that should be a bestseller based solely on the title, Hit Him Where It Hurts. It is a topic in this book that we talk about all the time. There's more of us than there are of them. So why do they do so well? How do they get so many of their voters motivated? And especially when I talk to uh, Spencer Critchley, who uh, a lot of you really enjoy, you know, it's this whole idea of Democrats can't get out of their head. We want to talk policy where Republicans are talking about fear and anger and what's going to happen to your kids. Uh, Rachel has put her ideas on this and how we can start beating Republicans at their own game in her new book, Hit Them Where It Hurts. Uh, Rachel, it is uh, so wonderful to talk to you. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much. You see this so clearly. You write about this so clearly. We... We we set our hair on fire almost on a daily basis on this show, trying to make these kinds of arguments. Is anybody in the upper echelons of the Democratic Party in the Joe Biden campaign? Is anybody listening to you? Well, I mean, you know, I think the blurbs on the back of the book kind of suggest that they probably are. (laughs) I mean, you know, this is a book that Celinda Lake, who is a very prominent Democratic consultant, Michael Steele, who is the former chair of the Republican National Committee and the man that basically pioneered the Republicans' modern electioneering system, who I base these reforms off of. And, of course, the current DNC chair, my good friend Jimmy Harrison, all endorsed this book and, and suggest that this is, the, this is what we need to be doing to win elections. Rachel, one of the um, political science people that I speak to on a regular basis, we were having a discussion earlier this week about, you know, messaging and how to how to take the Republicans playbook and make it your own. And they were saying, look, look, there's you know, it's become public knowledge that all the Republicans backed away from border this border deal because they were given those marching orders by Donald Trump. And the person I was talking to said, this is an opportunity for Joe Biden. He's got a you know, he should go to the border and he should be making this point again. Like, why isn't Donald Trump wanting to solve this problem? Why are Republicans not solving this problem? Is that the kind of action that you think would would be effective here? Yeah, no, I mean, it's, I mean, here's the thing, right? Like, there, <laughs> this is the third time in 20 years that the Republican Party has killed comprehensive immigration border security reform, okay? They did it in 2008 when John McCain voted against his own bill so that he could still be the Republican presidential nominee. They did it in 2013 when the Senate passed the improbable obstacle of 60 votes and sent an $80 billion border security reform bill to the House where the Republican Party was in power and then killed the bill. And now they're doing the exact same thing that they did in 2013 to yet another Senate-approved 
60-vote threshold piece of legislation that would be the most rigorous border security bill in the history of this country, and yet they're killing it. And here's the thing. No one knows. Okay, We know. The people listening to this show know. But we are not typical Americans. People have to understand this basic fact about our friends, relatives, coworkers, people we pass in the grocery store. They're not like us, okay? They don't follow the news. They don't read politics. When something fails to happen, they blame the president, and that's why that obstruction um, thing works so good, and that's why I would love to see Biden go down on the border. And this week, not in days, right, soon, go down there, hold a press conference about border chaos. There's a crisis with the border, and it's the Republican Party's fault. But at the end of the day, it really is about how you deliver things. And in places like Florida, right, we have a candidate, Rick Scott, who's going to be running for reelection in the Senate. This is a man who is is author of a bill that wants to end Social Security and Medicare (laughs) and Uh pass a tax hike that would be basically a $5,000 annual tax on the middle class, okay? And yet, unless I can can fix things in time, and that is my life goal, unless I can fix things in time, the Florida electorate of 2024 will never hear that about Rex Scott, okay? We're going to run a campaign to try to sell the Democratic nominee and all these policy pitches and bullshit, and what we should be doing is making sure that Florida finds out who Rick Scott is, the Republican MAGA extremist Rick Scott, and what that means for their own health, wealth, safety, and freedom. I agree with you 100%, but that's why I asked you at the beginning if what you're putting forth in this book, Hit Him Where It Hurts, is going to be adopted because we see the fact that Rick Scott is so vulnerable on these kinds right. of issues. Florida's filled with old people. Old people love Social Security. Yes. Old people love Medicare. I mean, yes. it, is a, it is an absolute no-brainer. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So here, let me let me try to make you guys feel better. And when I really suggest people read this book, yes, I'm selling a book. But guys, what I am selling is a pathway out of fascism. <laughs> I really need you to read it. So in the book, I lay out how much of the strategy got implemented in time for the 22 election. And, and frankly, if we had not implemented these strategic shifts, we would have not been able to sort most of their red wave, but it was not a universal implementation. So in the book, I talk about Arizona, I talk about Michigan, both of those states and their candidates and their parties went all in on negative partisanship strategy, defining the Republican Party as an existential threat and the opponent as a MAGA extremist on the issue of abortion, which was a gift and that's a different conversation that we can talk about. But in any case, where we ran that strategy, we cleaned it up on a, against a midterm effect, against a cycle in which we should only be losing, we won, but was not uniform. It did not run in the Val Demings race in Florida. It did not run in North Carolina for Sherry Beasley. It did not run in Ohio with Tim Ryan. And so that, you know, the book is designed to push me down the rest of, up over the rest of the mountain and make sure that every swing race in the state, in the country, from the state legislative races that we're going to be running in 2024, to the House, to the Senate, to the governor races, to the presidency, is talking about MAGA extremism. I I think that that is absolutely the way this has to go. Just to be clear, I want to get, uh, since you're more steeped in this than I am, there was recently um, a lot of reporting in the press how several months ago President Obama met with President Biden and was very concerned that uh, the Biden reelection campaign was too centralized, you know, too much had to go through the White House, that they needed to get out and about. 
um, from everything I read, the the fear was just sort of in the campaign organization. Maybe you know more about this than me, but is some of what you're talking about also part of that? The fact that not only did there need to be decision making permitted out in the field, but that maybe that some of these kinds of messages needed to be more stressed rather than Bidenomics? Well, I mean, here's the thing is that that, that that helps me sleep at night is that the Biden campaign strategy, and just for full disclosure, I'm not on the Biden campaign team, and I haven't given them direct strategic advice in any capacity, but they're running the right strategy because it's you know the strategy I'm advocating for. They're not going to listen to the naysayers and the, and the traditional consultants who are like, oh, run on economic accomplishments, run on infrastructure. I'm not saying that those things should be absent from the campaign, but they certainly can't be the the foundational strategic approach. And what Joe Biden and the Harris um, reelect team have already demonstrated to me is they understand that. They're going to be defining this election in big macro terms, and we're going to be wedging the repeal of Roe, the loss of women's constitutional freedom, very, very heavily. I, I have no worries about the Biden campaign messaging. Now, in terms of message distribution and centralization, that is a long conversation for a short radio interview, <laughs> but it is a huge issue, right? So I talk a lot about the need for an organization that isn't geared down in bureaucracy. The worst thing for a campaign is to have to run everything through uh, can we do this check. Mm-hmm. And, and so I you know, definitely agree with you on that. I, I'm working and trying to push for new infrastructure that would allow for, you know, a, a hierarchical decision-making, you know, we're going to do this, go do it now, rather than, hey, I want to do this thing, and now we have to get 15 people to agree to it. Yeah. One thing that has really surprised me in the last couple of days is that the uh, president has declined an opportunity to um, speak to the Super Bowl audience. He was offered that by CBS. Apparently, I read just this morning that after Biden declined, apparently Trump reached out to CBS and said, I'll do it. I'll do it. And they were like, thank you, Mr. Trump. But but, but no, thank you. Um, That seems seems like a real mistake on the part of the Biden campaign. And some, unfortunately, are linking it to, you know, Donald Trump has gaffes all the time. He's... He still thinks he's, you know, running against Barack Obama. But recently there have been a couple of gaffes where Joe Biden mentioned the previous ruler instead of the ruler like uh, that he's dealing with. And the and there's kind of this undercurrent of, oh, well, they don't want him to talk during the Super Bowl because, you know, he's old. And what if he makes a mistake? Whereas he's just said, you know, it's the Super Bowl. People are there to have fun. Nobody needs an infusion of politics. It seems to me that's a terribly missed opportunity. What do you think? Oh, I can't disagree. I mean, like I said, I'm not in the on the Biden reelect team and I'm not consulting with them in any capacity. But if I was and this was run by me, I would have been absolutely livid. Here's the problem. The Republican Party is very smart. And I lay out in the book how good they are at shaping narratives, using their media and social media um, you know, assets, which, is, which are incredibly centralized and well-funded and not just grassroots people like me who decide one day they can't take it anymore, right? It's an organized um, ecosystem. Like, you know, with, with, they have used that to define Biden's 
biggest liability, which was always age, it was age the first time. So obviously it was going to be age the second time, just like they did with Hillary Clinton. Starting in 2015, long before she was the nominee, they started the Benghazi committee hearings. This is years mm-hmm. after the event that they started these, right? And they did it to shape public opinion. So that public opinion is very strong. There is, this is a liability. I, I, I go to war with the army I have, not the one I'd like to have. So I like to try to see things as they are, not as how I wish they would be. The biggest liability we face is that there's a perception among these low-information, imagistic voters, regular Americans, because we're not regular, they are, that Biden is demented. Okay, And so the worst thing to possibly do is turn down a Super Bowl interview, not only because you're foregoing the only time ever 100 million eyeballs will be on one TV, one thing, because that never happens in contemporary media, media, America, because of all the tech that we have now. Not only are you foregoing that chance to hit 100 million eyeballs at once, but you're also reaffirming the perception that he's not up to the job. It's an absolute terrible mistake. I hope they have a really good reason for making it. And if they do, they should probably disclose it so that people stop getting upset about it. That's the other thing that bothers me is there hasn't been a good explanation for why they're not doing it. This, oh, well, you know, it's football. People don't want to hear about politics. That's nuts. Uh, It's it seems to me, unless unless they're hiding something terrible from us that they really don't want us to see. I can't I don't know anything about political campaigns. And I would say to anybody who would listen, this is a terrible decision. Yeah, I mean, I can't, like I said, I, I, I would have I may I would have been livid. <laughs> yeah, I would have, you know, other than my leg fell off and I can't or Yes. Right. There's nothing. There's almost nothing that I would have accepted as a reasonable excuse to forego this opportunity. I think it was a big strategic miss. But you know what? I'm glad they did it in in February of 2024, and they'll learn from it and hopefully realize this is the worst liability that they have to fight back. As this really embedded. I mean, Donald Trump is is demented, right? I mean, he literally can't string a sentence together. Mm-hmm. And he thinks Nikki Haley was in charge on Jan 6. Oh. There's not, I mean, you, Biden's a stutterer and he's old and frail looking. So there's always going to be the ability to doctor that stuff, okay? But the fact, of the, the fact that the electorate thinks Donald Trump by 15 points is more mentally sound than Joe Biden tells you how important it was to put him on that Super Bowl interview. And I hope that, that they'll learn a lesson from it. Oh, I hope so, too. I just hope that it's it's not an opportunity that they will look back and go, man, you know, we really should have done oh, they that. Could. Yeah, yeah um, they definitely Rachel, could. They definitely could. Yep. You made reference mm-hmm. to something earlier in our conversation, which is something that I wanted to spend a little more time on. What I what you referred to and what I often on the show refer to as the low information voter, somebody, you know, I have. I have a lot of friends who are, as you might imagine, um, you know, just wild about politics. <laughs> just, you know, I wake up and there's texts from my friends. Did you see yep. this? Did you see this? And I yep. love those people. But I also have friends who are very successful and very intelligent who will say, you know what? Maybe when it gets closer to the election, I'll start paying attention. Um, but it's all yep. just so negative, And I would yep. rather read a book or watch a movie. I don't watch any yep. of the cable shows. Um, a lot of them yep. don't even read <laughs> papers anymore. Yep. They and, don't know that, that there was a whole insurrection plot. They uh, know that there was a know, capital I, attack, but they don't know about any of the coup plot stuff, with the fake elector stuff, or any of it, do you? They don't know it. 
Yeah. So what about, how so, would you feel about things if you knew nothing? Okay, if you didn't have all this context, and people look at public opinion, they're like, "Why aren't people getting upset and responding to all this stuff?" They don't know, and they will yes. never know unless we force them to look. And you know, I to some degree, I understand. My partner and I took a vacation end of August, and he's very into politics. And I, at the beginning of the vacation, I said, "Okay." I want you to know I'm on a news blackout for the next two weeks. So I'm not going to look at anything. I'm not going to look at social media. I'm not going to read anything. And you can't talk to me about anything. And every few days he'd go like, oh, my God, did you hear it? And I'd be like, ah, no, no. Yeah. So I understand where they're coming from. But it's so important. I, You know, Maybe we've been we've we've rung this bell too many times, but it is the most important election. Democracy is on the ballot this time around, not just whether or not you want small government or larger government or whatever you perceive the differences are between Republican and Democrat. And I would love how do you break through? How do you get the important information that they need to the low information voter? That's exactly right, and that's why, you know, in the book I talk about the the power of one, i.e. you, right? Each person listening to this is an influencer, and you have these people in your life. Now, I'm John, you're the only other person I've ever met in all these years I've been doing politics now that know other normal people because <laughs> <laughs> that's my friends, right? Mm-hmm. Like my best friends, my five best friends, they all vote. But I think it's dangerous. I think it's dangerous for us to only hang around with those people who, you know, you know, get as rabid about this stuff as we do, because we forget, you know, when I had dinner with my friend and my friend was saying, oh, you know, I I really, oh, does something happen? Uh, You know, did something? I really don't pay attention. You know, it's all so negative. And I'm like, oh, this is America. Okay. So, like, that's that's what I'm saying to people who are hearing my voice now. You know those people. You know who they are in your life, especially the ones that don't vote. Because my friends, at the end of the day, they're going to vote. They, they always vote. But there's others who don't even do that. And we need to make sure that they hear what is at stake, their freedom, their rights, their fortunes, their wealth, their retirement, not other people, not, you know, this group, that group, these other folks will suffer, them. The Republican Party is coming for everyone's health, wealth, freedom, and safety, and it is up to us through word of mouth to find these people who will never watch. Their algorithm has no politics in it. They're not watching ads on TV. There's not, they're not reading newspapers, not even walking past newspaper machines like they used to in the 80s. They do not know, and it is our job to make them look. Mm-hmm. I agree with you, and it's going to be something that I spend more time on uh, in the coming days, as I corral my friends who are, you know, people who have like hobbies that, you know, aren't politics. <laughs> I don't understand it, frankly, Rachel, but I understand that those people are out there. Um, so much I want to talk to you about. And there's so many. Ch- we could we could do it in not just one show. We could do the entire week of this radio show. Just going through your book, <laughs> hit them where it hurts, chapter by chapter by chapter. But one more tangent because I want to get to chapter three, You Are What You Eat. I'm going to make sure we talk about that, uh, the media, before we wrap this up. But sure. uh, some time ago, some weeks ago, there was, um, there was a statement by Joe Biden where he said, I am the best candidate to beat Donald Trump. 
because people were asking him about, you know, I guess whether he was going to stay in the race or if he's too old. And a lot of people took that to mean if Donald Trump isn't the opponent, maybe, just maybe, uh, Joe Biden would step aside. As I've said on this on this show, I even if Donald Trump is convicted of something, I don't think that's going to stop him. I think unless unless he majorly strokes out or something like that, he's he's in it for the long haul. You know, there was a comedian who made a joke like a year ago about him accepting the nomination and showing the crowd his ankle bracelet. Well, that looks like maybe it was prophecy, not, you know, some sort of a stand up routine. But if for some reason Donald Trump was no longer the candidate, do you have any sense that Biden would step aside? No, no. I mean, here's the thing. (laughs) These things take months. I mean, when everyone thinks about replacing Biden, by the way, what they magically do is insert their preferred replacement. Okay, maybe it's a Buttigieg person or a Harris person or a Gretchen Whitmer person or a Gavin Newsom fan. But when they think about Biden being gone, their next happy image is that person in that role. Well, that's not how it works. When there's a power vacuum and four people, at least, those are the top tier, that each have a very valid claim to that power, then you end up with a terrible, terrible fight. It's a hundred million dollars worth of ads spent attacking your own party, leaving the opposition in the shadows. The only way that we survive is with the opposition in the limelight. So I would not be a fan of anything that takes the attention away from the MAGA nuts, chaos that they're causing every day, and Donald Trump's, you know, criminal dictator comments uh, to have any insight about who the next Democrat's going to be. And I think we need to bring back, remember the Joe Biden of the aviator glasses and the Corvette and the Joe Biden who was uh, riding his bike? We need to we need to see more of that guy. Somebody pointed out to me a while ago that especially in his later years, when, of course, Ronald Reagan had some serious issues, that the people around him protected him and made sure he was only shown in his best light. If he was going to be speaking nationally, they made sure that his remarks were very brief. If he wanted to talk about a policy or an issue, he would make some introductory remarks and then turn it over to the expert who was going to be giving everybody the the details on this policy or or this idea. Nobody seems to be trying to show Joe Biden in the best possible light. Even when they write his his speeches, if you have a stutter, I don't care how many years you consider it to be in your past, there are certain words or letter combinations that you have trouble with. Don't put (laughs) those words in the script. You know, I mean, as a former before after I left journalism, I spent years media training. And whenever I see Biden, when he's poorly lit and he can't hold his eyes open because there's a huge light in his face or when he reads a speech that has all the words that are hard for him to say, I want to go and kill somebody. <laughs> and here's the thing: the right loves that because they, those clips are back out yes. on their their massive internet within like five seconds, right? So here's the thing: I in chapter three, part three of the book, electoral war. I open up with a quote from Sun Tzu, okay? And that that quote is talks about the importance of strategic planning, right? 
do control all the variables you can in strategy so that you leave little to chance. Right? Plan things. The, uh, yeah, the advice has been around it, right? for a while. Yeah, yeah. I didn't invent no it. So, you know what I mean? So, get, so, yes, with Biden, I mean, here's one thing. You can't hide Biden because that's going to reestablish use the hiding as the as the proof that he can't function and do the job, right? So you can't hide by this, but you need to set him up for success and not for failure. These are things that, you know, are easy to control, the words in the speech, the length of time he's going to talk, you know, the things that, 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 that they are interested in exploiting him. The answer is definitely do not hide Biden. And I think that it's important for the, the campaign to be using these surrogates now, not waiting till summer. Get Gavin, you want Gavin Newsom, Gretchen Whitmer, uh, Josh Shapiro in Pennsylvania, Fetterman, you know, the best messengers in the party, Gavin Newsom, definitely, right? You want these people on every talk show, on Face, on, on Face the Nation, on Meet the Press, on cable news, pounding, pounding the MAGA brand, and really injecting a lot of, like, the, the, you know, the Biden temperamentally is not a flamethrower. I think he's been way out ahead of the curve of a lot of the other people in Washington and being willing to say we have a threat to democracy that's fascism and we need to say its name. So I think in some ways they've been very, very good, but there is room to improve and not much time to do it in. And I want to see every I and every T crossed strategically that we can to optimize our probability of winning. Well, we still have a couple of minutes, and I want you to talk about the media. Ever since Donald Trump came to prominence, I've been talking and other prominent media people, oh, well, you know, uh, reporters have to change how they do what they do, and, and these are the new rules. And how many years later, and, and we're still saying that, that this is a, is a different kind of landscape. It needs to be reported in a different way, and I don't really see it happening on a grand scale. Please tell me your thoughts. Yeah, no, I mean, I would say, and it's hard, right? I'm doing reform on strategy and messaging, and I know that we've changed a lot and that we've sorted a red wave doing it, and yet I hear all the time that Democrats have still not moved at all on messaging. It's very same for this this um, other element as well. So there is progress that has been made with media. Case in point, the House, you know, the House Republicans get sworn in. I'm, like, freaking out, right? Because <laughs> I understand what they did to Hillary Clinton using the committee control process, the, the witch hunt, they used it to destroy her reputation very effectively and ended up costing her the presidency. And I knew that they were planning the same thing for Joe Biden. I really urged the media not to fall in the trap because, you you know, they're making false allegations and, and outlandish claims about Hunter Biden and Joe Biden, right? I mean, Hunter Biden has his issues, but not selling foreign inter- <laughs> influence through his father. And, and that we could not do what we did with with Clinton and validate their crazy stuff because once you start treating it serious people start treating it serious and I have to say the media did it they never once carried the water for the Republican Party on any of these fake investigations the Mary Ocas impeachment so there has been a lot of progress but of course there is a ton of room of improvement and you know we have to get the improvement that we've already seen in places like MSNBC to be replicated farther and farther out because at the end of the day you know very few people are watching the news but when they are watching it they're not watching it on cable news we want to 
make sure that we're getting it on the things like Good Morning America and the Today Show. And, and we're starting to see that eke in. And, and I can't, if you're a journalist listening to this story, you should know you'll be first on the list of people who are going to suffer under a dictator. Oh, my God. Yes. I mean, he's already said he's going to go after NBC, NBC and MSNBC and charge them with treason, for God's sake. Yes. Rachel, we yes. could, uh, I love talking to you. I love the book. The, it's hit him where it hurts. Uh, Rachel Bittekoffer is the author. It is brilliant. Pick it up. Read it. Uh, those of you who are listening are junkies just like we are. So it's right up your alley. Yep. I promise you. Uh, Rachel, yep, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. I hope you save, save America. Thank you very much. We're going to take a break for news and be back with more after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Take it away, Ian. Yeah, take it away, Ian. It's going to be a bumpy ride. (laughs) Joan Esposito. Whoa, that's an explosive sentence. On WCPT 820. I want you to know that I am continuing to keep an eye on C-SPAN, where they are still considering... The motion to proceed, which is what's called a cloture vote. And uh, Lindsey Gray, you know, whoever does the closed captioning for C-SPAN does a terrible job. If this is AI, then we are safe because this is it's really hard to follow. Um, I'm pretty sure Lindsey Graham just said something about the people, uh, something about protecting the people of South Carolina from attack. And then Kirsten Cinema asked him if he basically understood what was being debated and the vote coming up. And he said, oh, you mean that vote we took last night? Um, so either Lindsey Graham is very confused or who's ever doing the closed captioning is having a lot of fun with this. Uh, I will keep you posted on this. Um, On another topic, one of the things that you're going to hear coming up over and over again in the various elections that are going to be taking place in 2024, drug prices, drug prices, drug prices. President Biden wants insulin prices capped for senior citizens. We read all the time about drug companies and big pharma and how they are, you know, gouging people and raising prices on drugs that they know people need to take to live. And that's, I think, definitely part of the conversation. But when I've looked into it a little bit more, there's also a certain structure in how prices are set and prices are passed down. And I've never talked about it before because I've never really understood it. I'm sure that you've heard about uh, pharmacy managers, uh, pharmacy benefit managers. You've read about them like I have. And I don't really understand what they do. But my limited understanding is that somehow the way this whole system is structured adds unnecessary dollars to a lot of costs for various drugs. Um, recently, I was offered an interview with Antonio Chacha, who's president of Three Axis Advisors. They're um, an expert on prescription drug prices. And I was hoping that Antonio would be able to shed some light on this 
bureaucracy that seems to add to the cost we pay for our drugs. First of all, Antonio, welcome. Thank you for being here. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. Okay. What the heck is a pharmacy benefit manager, and why does it make things more expensive? (laughs) Well, uh, in the old days, we didn't used to cover medicines under our health insurance plans. And actually, in the 60s, in the 70s, as part of their collective bargaining negotiations, the United Auto Workers were actually the first in the country to add drugs to their health insurance benefits. So in the past, we used to pay for medicines out of our pockets, our wallets and our purses. And then we started integrating them into insurance coverage, which is really good. And they brought in these pharmacy benefit managers or PBMs to essentially act as the intermediary that facilitated the transactions between the pharmacies and our benefits plans. So they started off very lean and mean. And then as we started to cover more and more medicines under everybody's health insurance plans, PBMs grew significantly and became the intermediary in between almost 95% of all transactions at the pharmacy counter. And they are a huge component of our prescription drug supply chain and which medicines will be covered and how much we will ultimately pay as patients. So the pharmacy benefit managers make those decisions on what kinds of drugs will be covered and which kinds of drugs won't be covered? Did I understand that right? Yeah, so think of it this Yeah, that's correct. So think of it this way. You know, every drug that's made doesn't necessarily get covered under our benefits programs, whether it's Medicaid, Medicare, or our employers who offer coverage to us as employees. So the PBM is acting as an intermediary that says, look, we're going to cover certain medicines under this benefit plan. They get to choose which ones will be covered, which ones won't. They get to determine which pharmacies we can go to to access our benefits, which ones we can't. They also get to determine how much we will pay as far as co-pays as patients. The very really perverse thing about this is that while PBMs were brought in to act as friction, against drug manufacturers and pharmacies and the prices that they set. In the 90s, PBMs got exemptions to federal anti-kickback laws, along with drug companies. That allowed drug companies to no longer compete to lower prices, but instead it gave them the ability to now pay PBMs in exchange for covering the medicines. while While the PBM is setting the menu, of items that we get to get under our benefits plans, they get kickbacks from drug manufacturers to entice that PBM to cover one drug over another. As you might imagine, PBMs started to use lose their purity because if they're getting paid by drug companies, they start to have very perverse incentives to favor medicines that might be more expensive for us or less effective because they're getting a bigger kickback from the drug manufacturer. Interesting. I know um, that there are a couple of bills being considered at the federal level, Uh, a House bill protecting patients against PBM Abuses Act and and another bill 
called the Patients Before Middlemen, which also happens to be PBM Act. Explain to me what these bills want to accomplish. There's two main things that I think are the nucleus of these very complicated and expansive pieces of legislation. The first is a concept called delinking. And what that means is that if a PBM is getting paid by a drug manufacturer in exchange for covering a drug, oftentimes those relationships will give PBMs money as a percentage off the list price of a drug. So as you might imagine, the percentage of yield off of a higher price item means more dollars. And so PBMs have a perverse incentive that as drug makers raise prices, their compensation or kickback also grows. What Congress is trying to do is to create a more agnostic approach to that system. They're not ending the anti-kickback exemptions, but what they're saying, PBM compensation can't rise as drugs go up. The belief is is that PBMs will be more prone to cover lower-priced drugs on formularies instead of the higher-priced ones. The second aspect of these bills is outlawing a practice called spread pricing. While PBMs are determining which drugs that they'll cover and which ones they won't, they also pay pharmacies when we use our benefits at those pharmacies. Well, what we found in the state of Ohio and a number of states across the country is that when PBMs get money and pay for drugs at the pharmacy counter, they'll pay your local pharmacy, let's say, $5 for a product, but then they'll turn around to the government or the plan sponsor and bill a different rate and pocket the difference. In Ohio, they found PBMs marking up drugs in our Medicaid program to the tune of $245 million in just one year of the program. Congress is aiming to ban this practice where they pay low, bill high, and pocket the difference in state Medicaid programs across the country. Okay, it sounds like when this category of person, this pharmacy benefit manager, when it was first created, it brought some value to the equation. Is there any value being brought by pharmacy benefit managers now? Relative to the amount of money that they're taking out of the system, I would argue no. But I think it's important to remember that we live in a system of bloated, inflated drug prices, bloated, inflated pharmacy prices. And a lot of the reason that they're so inflated are because of the perverse incentives that PBMs have inserted into this marketplace. Regardless of of that blame, we have a system of really ridiculously high prices, and PBMs are providing some erosion off those bloated prices but they're partially responsible for creating them. So I refer to them as the arsonists and firefighters of high drug prices. <laughs> they are creating a artificial discount, if you will, off of prices that they helped inflate. Wow. Okay. Recently, I changed insurance. And what you just made reference to earlier in our talk happened. I was told, oh, um, you know, Uh, I was doing all my prescriptions at CVS, but this new insurance, Walgreens, is the preferred provider. What did who cares where I get my prescriptions filled? Why does that matter? (laughs) Well, your PBM and insurance company definitely do. On paper, it sounds like creating a pharmacy network makes sense, at least from from an employer's perspective. The idea is that a PBM can go out into the marketplace 
and negotiate with pharmacies to try to get the best deal on behalf of the benefit plan. Regardless of whether that's okay or not, I can tell you there's a lot of reasons why sometimes it doesn't work. But obviously, there's a philosophical premise here that you have to accept, which is, is it okay for your insurance company and PBM to make decisions on who your healthcare providers are versus yourself? <laughs> so as PBMs that are also owned by insurance companies become increasingly more consolidated, one of my broader fears from a public health perspective is that these health insurance and, P- and companies and PBMs are making decisions for us on where we can go and what medicines we take, while obviously having conflicts of interest in making those decisions. Because as I said, they're getting kickbacks mm-hmm. from drug manufacturers, which can help determine which drugs we get. But in addition, PBMs also own their own pharmacies, and they also get to make decisions on which pharmacies we get to use. These two bills that are being considered by Congress, Protecting Patients Against PBM Abuses Act and the Patients Before Middlemen PBM Act, how do we as listeners to this radio show and voters, how can we help support these and make sure they become law? Well, you make your opinions known with your congressional leaders. One thing I've learned in my years studying this marketplace is that most people aren't sitting around their kitchen table at night saying, man, I wonder what those PBMs are up to now, right? <laughs> people probably have never been a... <laughs> Nobody's oh, I don't know, Antonio, I'm pretty weird. I might sit around and say that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you are part of a small segment of the population then, and good for you for knowing. But what people are talking about table is, I afford my medications. Why did our local pharmacy close, or why is there a three-day delay to get my prescription filled? The medicine that, that my doctor prescribed for me, why is it not covered? All of those questions being asked, a lot of those, answer lie, all those answers lie with the decisions that PBMs make. And so if you're having problems with any of those, those things, your drug affordability, your access, et cetera, those are issues that need to be brought to your local legislators at the state and federal level so that they can ultimately do, you know, advocate on your behalf for a better aligned system. Antonio, thank you so much for putting this into um, language that I feel like I can finally understand. I've been reading about pharmacy benefit managers for the last couple of years and never really understood. Um, but thank you. Thank you for making this clear to us and, and letting us know that there is some movement toward correcting uh, this problem. I appreciate it. Hey, thank you so much for having me, Joe. Antonio Chacha, president of Three Axis Advisors. They're experts on prescription drug prices. We're going to take a break and be back with more after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. The reason that I listen to you from the infamous other side, you will call a spade a spade, and if it's indefensible, you will not defend it. And you know what? I can respect that. A WCPT 820. Checking in on the Senate floor again, Democratic Senator Jack Reed from Rhode Island is speaking now, and he is making reference to the previous bill that was shot down in the Senate, the supplemental funding bill that had money for the border and Israel and Ukraine and Taiwan, the bill that Republicans demanded and then walked away from, which is leaving us with a bill, a backup bill that is just foreign aid to Israel, Ukraine and Taiwan. Uh, just this morning, 
Adam Kinzinger, our former Illinois congressperson, uh, now a thorn in the side of uh, most of the Republican Party. He talked about how aid for Ukraine could come about. And he was talking about that because even though right now they're um, right now they're debating a motion to proceed. If they vote on the motion to proceed, then they will debate on the actual bill to provide this foreign aid. Even if it passes in the Senate, it's going to be potentially in real trouble in the House because the far right does not necessarily want to continue supporting Ukraine. Um, after the um, supplemental funding bill went down to defeat, immediately in the House, Speaker Mike Johnson put together a standalone bill just to fund Israel. And it was voted down. Now, Democrats helped to vote that down because they knew that that if they passed this, that the Republicans would never support aid to Ukraine. It has been a real sticking point with some of the more far right members who've adopted this Donald Trumpian pro Putin um, why are we spending money on Ukraine kind of an idiocy. Adam Kinzinger is worried that this this current funding bill that would supply Israel, Taiwan, and Ukraine, that even if it gets out of the Senate and goes to the House, there will not be enough votes to get it passed because of this um, far-right control over seemingly what becomes law and what doesn't. You know, when I was talking uh, to uh, Rachel um, a little while ago, about her new book, Hit Him Where It Hurts. One of the things that she is saying to Democrats uh, is that, guess, guess what, guys? You need to fight fire with fire. You need to get as emotional and get as angry, if need be, as, as the Republicans are. You need people to feel some things about this. Adam Kinzinger has an idea where... Republicans in the House could make the rest of the Republicans in Congress feel something using the far right's own tactics against them to get aid passed to Ukraine. I thought what he has to say is really interesting, makes a lot of sense. Listen to this. Look, I have one way to guarantee that the vote for Ukraine aid gets put on the floor and very soon. Out of 200 and some members, GOP members of the House, it only takes three or four to commit to vote against every rule. A rule is what allows floor action to even happen. To commit to vote against every rule until the Speaker agrees to put Ukraine aid on the floor for an up or down vote. That's it. Simply put the aid bill on the floor and allow the members of Congress to actually have their say. They know it'll pass, by the way. So only three or four House Republicans have to agree to take down every rule until that agreement is made and it's ironclad. This is what the Freedom Caucus does all the time. And it's frankly why the Freedom Caucus is successful. Until people on the other end of that argument are willing to fight by the same 
the rules or lack of rules that the Freedom Caucus fights by, they will run the table every time. The best analogy I use is if everybody in a room has a hand grenade, the one that's willing to actually pull the pin and drop the grenade is the most powerful of all these grenade-wielding people. So the Republicans, all the ones that support Ukraine aid, only three or four of them have to commit to vote against every rule until the aid package is put on the floor, and it will be put on the floor for an up or down vote. Look at all the deals that were cut on Speaker McCarthy's behalf to become Speaker, on Speaker Johnson's behalf to become Speaker. This is a really minor thing to acquiesce to, and quite honestly, it will give Speaker Johnson the cover he needs to put this on the floor. So call the members of Congress you know, the Republicans, and ask them to commit to vote against any rule until Ukraine aid passes or is put on the floor for a vote. Pretty straightforward, isn't it? And he's absolutely right. This is the power the Freedom Caucus has. They don't have the votes to get anything passed, but they have the votes to make sure nothing gets voted on. It's a negative superpower. And I'm so tired of hearing interviews with Republicans who ostensibly want to be known as moderates or middle of the roads and just bemoan this whole, um, you know, we don't have any power. You know, well, the night Kevin McCarthy was elected speaker, there was, um, I believe it was Don Bacon from Nebraska, went to him and said, don't think the rest of us are going to stand by and let the far-right members of Congress in our party dictate to us, because it isn't going to happen. And we're going to get together. There are more of us than there are of them, and we're going to make sure it doesn't happen. And you should know that. So don't start just giving in to them left and right. What happened? Do you remember them standing up and uh, fighting their far-right brothers and sisters? Because I don't. Each and every time there was a crisis point, the so-called sensible Republicans, for the most part, did nothing. And for the most part, said nothing. They just quietly rolled over time and time and time again. That's why people are calling this the do-nothing Congress. Because that's exactly what it is. It is a com- Congress that has accomplished nothing, will co- accomplish nothing. And the Democrats don't have the majority. Will there be three or four? I'm not quite sure why he's unsure of the number. Maybe it depends on how many Republicans are present any day in the chamber. Three or four Republicans could insist that aid for Ukraine get passed. But will they? Will they? We have seen no indication so far that any of them are capable of taking a stand, let alone sticking their neck out on any issue. So I think Adam Kinzinger makes a lot of sense. I think it should happen. Aid to Ukraine needs to happen. Will this bill that also has aid to Israel and aid to Taiwan, will it be passed in the House? The far right has said no. We shall see. Let's take a break. We'll be back with more after this.
Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. It has been a while since we spoke with Gerard McClendon. He's an author and associate professor at Chicago State University. You might remember his book. It was called President Thug. It was a satirical look at Donald Trump's presidency. It has been too long, Gerard. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. In, in, in a sarcastic manner, <laughs> I say that, especially in the political climate that we're in right now. Thank you for having me on WCPT, Joan Esposito. Uh, it is my pleasure. So we still have not gotten rid of the orange god. Are you surprised he's not gone from the political scene by now? I'm not surprised at all because he's a master of media. He knows how to get attention. He knows how to control the news cycle. We're talking about him right now. Uh, I wrote a satirical guide on how he manipulates the public um, in a ceaseless manner, you know, and he does it with the uh, snake rabbit theory. So, for instance, if a person's holding a snake or a reptile in one arm and they're holding a rabbit in the other arm, the per- most people will tend to look at the reptile more than they'll look at the rabbit because the reptile is more of a threat, right? Mm-hmm. And this this is Donald Trump. You know, he's not throwing you rabbits because rabbits don't get attention. He's throwing a reptile at you. He doesn't care whether it's negative or positive. He's going to throw the reptile at you so that you pay attention to him, and he's very good at it. He is very good at it, isn't he? What amazes me, though, it's been so long. We, we, we know he doesn't mean anything he says. We know he's angry and wants retribution and retaliation. He's, he doesn't hide it. You know, I mean, it's like he's got the reptile wrapped around his neck and is or is wearing it as a crown in in this case. And still, still, people say, you know, he's our guy. I don't get it. Please explain it to me. You you know what, Joan? Thank you for saying that, because, uh, wow, it's like, man, it's like telepathy almost. It's like (laughs) what you were saying was what I was thinking. Donald Trump, first of all, he is not a serious person when it comes to serious issues that concern the heart of America, the economy, the education system, the employment system. He is not a serious person. How he became president is still to this day and will be probably for decades, if not centuries, a scar on the American value system of a U.S. presidency. And so... In knowing that, he knows that being the enemy gets attention and being liked by a certain segment of the population, it's not sexy enough for him. I mean, you know, the average person, Jones, think about this, would have gone into hiding if they lost a lawsuit by from E. Jean Carroll for $83 million. I mean, think about it. A man sexually assaulted 
assaulting E. Jean Carroll, having to pay $83 million, the average man would have gone into hiding. What does Donald Trump do? Uh, I didn't rape her. I didn't touch her. I don't even know her. See, and, and so this is a he's a different kind of animal, and people still don't quite understand what he's doing. You know, uh, you were talking about the Freedom Caucus earlier. You know, the Freedom Caucus of the Republican Party is the party of no on steroids. Donald Trump knows that with the Ukraine deal, with the border deal, kill it. Because I'm not the author of it, right? You know, Joan, I'm just looking for a politician who will start a robust discussion on introducing and passing legislation that helps people. Isn't that the purpose? In today's political climate, it's all about the headline and it's all about social media. And that's sad because everyone suffers. Well, to answer your question, it doesn't seem to be about helping people. Um, you know, otherwise there there wouldn't be this kind of chaos. I mean, one of the Republicans in Congress, um, I think the guy's name was Eli Crane, even came out within the last day or two and said, oh, you know, uh, the people from my district, they like the chaos. If it were up to them, they'd just want to shut the whole government down because they just think government's no good. Um, that seems to be not the outlier, but rather the the prototype for the Republican of today. That's right. And the polarization makes the polarization is magnetic. It's almost as if if I can't give you something good and if I'm the party of no, let me just continue to get your attention. I mean, uh, a, a, a great analogy is looking at um, the ban on books. What's so oh, what's so hyper contradictory about the ban on books is that you've got people banning books who don't read books, Joe. <laughs> I know. Joe, we have con- people in Congress that don't know how to pronounce the word indictment. They say it's oh, indictment. That Marjorie Taylor Greene. I don't think I played that clip on the air, folks, but she was talking oh, about this latest indictment. <sighs> yeah. Indictment. So, so now you have illiterate people in Congress making laws or blocking laws. When it comes to Republicans, they don't even make laws anymore. They just block laws. So now you've got people who are functionally illiterate, who can get a headline and who can control social media and a lot of the American polity and can't even put a sentence together. This is what we're up against right now. Now, and then when you add that to racism, sexism, classism, when you add that to this whole, you know, Republican anti-LGBT uh, QIA plus community movement, it just gets worse and worse and worse. And it's and so I always ask my Republican colleagues, what are you going to do that's going to help the public? And they always come back to me with something that's against something as opposed to mm. for something. You know, here's a good one, uh, Joan, and I'm sure you talked about this on the show before. It's hilarious talking to people in red states about the Affordable Care Act. 
And they're like, don't like that Obamacare, but I love that Affordable Care Act. Mm-hmm. And then when I they know. find out that, when they find out, Joan, come on, Joan, you know, when they find out it's the same thing, it's like, what? I actually saw a woman interviewed who said um, that she hated Obamacare, but she didn't have to worry because she got her insurance through the Affordable Care Act. And I'm and it was just what what do you say? What do you say? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's America's schizophrenic hatred with itself. So what I mean by that is if someone were to attack, if another country attacked our shores, Joan, we would be all rah, rah, USA forever. Let's come together. Let's fight the enemy, right? But the minute there's no war on our soil, we fight each other. That's the problem. That's the schizophrenia that we go through. As long as I don't have an enemy outside of this country, I'll create one within. Who's the enemy? The blacks. Who's the enemy? The uh, undocumented citizens. Who's the enemy? The gay community. Who's the enemy? Women. How dare they try to run for office? You know, which is another big problem that I have when men who are ultimately incompetent automatically think that a woman shouldn't run for an office or an executive job just because they're a woman, as if this entitlement of being a man is something that's validated, you know, uh, de jure, de facto. De facto is validated. De jure, it is not. And that's the problem, again, in this country. You've got these mediocre legislators. These congressmen and these senators, these are mediocre people. These are people who can barely read, that control the laws in this country, Joe. It's frightening. It's terrifying. (laughs) It is absolutely terrifying. Um, Let's take a break. I'm talking to uh, Gerard McLennan, who's an author and associate professor at Chicago State University. And when we come back, Gerard, I want to talk about this whole notion that uh, somehow African-Americans are disillusioned with President Biden and he has to do more to win back the African-American community. We'll be right back after this. Joan Esposito, live, local and progressive on WCPT 820. I'm speaking with Gerard McClendon, who's an author and associate professor at Chicago State University. He wrote a book during the Trump presidency, called President Thug, which was a satirical look at the Trump presidency. And uh, let's hope to God he doesn't have to write a sequel that Donald Trump does not get into the White House another time. But, Gerard, I've been reading a lot about possible um, disaffection with Joe Biden, particularly among African-American men. What do you see and, and where does that come from? So it's a very interesting phenomenon to me because 
once again, we do see this peeling away of some African-American man possibly going to Trump and going away from Biden. However, though, I believe that those numbers are extremely small. Here's the other thing. Yes, it gets the social media headline uh, on, you know, Twitter, on Instagram, Facebook and in YouTube. But when it comes, you have a lot of disillusioned black men who say they're going to go the Trump way or, or not vote for Biden. But many of these people in the social media spheres are non-voters in the first place. Mm-hmm. So this is where this, this is where polling is flawed many times, um, whether you're polled through uh, the Internet or polled by telephone or cell phone. Many times if a, if a pollster calls you and you say which way you're going, if the person is already a person who's not going to vote in the next election anyway, that person's a non-entity. Mm-hmm. However, a lot of, you know, there's a hundred million people in this country that don't vote. And, but however, a lot of those people who don't vote are very vocal and they're all over. They, 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 they can break the news cycle. Okay. So now this whole thing, all oh, black men work, you know, Biden hasn't done anything for us. He really, have you, have you looked at the statistics lately? Mm-hmm. I mean, student student loans alone. I mean, I'll give you, I'll just give you something anecdotal and then I'll look at some other examples. I went to three private colleges, my undergrad, Wabash College, my uh, uh, master's degree, Valparaiso University, my PhDs from Loyola University, Chicago, three very expensive institutions. Okay. Did I have student loans? Yes. Did I have scholarships? Yes. However, the scholarships didn't um, didn't absorb all of the tuition because I've been teaching at a public institution for over 10 years. The Biden administration erased $101,000 of my student loan debt. This happened last year, Joan, the Biden administration, and he's not doing anything for people because it was the public service loan forgiveness plan. If you work at a not-for-profit organization, and I tell this to all your listeners, if you work at a not-for-profit organization or a public employer and you've worked there 10 years or more, you can get your student loans erased. Biden hasn't done anything for blacks. He's helping African-Americans stay in their homes through the American Rescue Plan. He's helping black Americans uh, uh, ensure that they get adequate value for the homes that they own through the administration's interagency task force on property appraisal and valuation equity act. Mm-hmm. See, the, 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 the whole Biden hasn't done. Here's the thing. The people saying Biden hasn't done anything for you and that Trump's going to do everything for you are the same people, Joan, who don't even know who's on the school board in their neighborhood. They're the same people who don't know their senator. They don't know their congressman. They don't know the they don't they don't engage themselves in local politics and they have the audacity to talk about what Trump or what Biden's gonna do for you. Unbelievable. Don't be fooled by this disillusionment and this this apathy toward Biden from black men. Trust me, black women are going to save the day in November and black men will follow suit. 
black women really do uh, give the Democratic Party so many wins. Um, it is really a, a voting block. I mean, you know, I read, you know, all the different surveys and, well, you know, college educated going this way, suburban women going this way and then that way. But man, oh, man, you look at African-American women and they seem to get something that is lost on others that the Democratic Party may not be perfect, but it's the best shot we have right now for a fair and equitable world. Yeah. And people always come to the black vote. Right. I mean, April Ryan talks about it in her book, A Black Woman Will Save the World. When anyone gets in trouble, what do they do? Better call a black woman. Black woman can save the day. When anyone gets in trouble, what do you do? You wait for South Carolina. Why? Because the black female and black male vote is strong. It's what saved Biden in the last election. <laughs> you know, you know it, it, it always happens. So, so yes, we're we're given pejoratives, right? You know, the uh, apathetic, lazy. Uh, but the bottom line is, when anyone needs the vote to sway or to win, it's that black vote. And that's the vote that Biden's going to have to start concentrating on. And they got to make sure that they're spending adequate dollars in radio, TV and Internet on ads. And they're going to have to also make sure that they're heavily ensconced in making sure that they don't just look at women and black people as just a vote. They have to be. They have to make sure that they're embedded and that they're invested. It's one thing to say, we would love to have your vote. It's another thing to say, are you spending money in these markets on a ground campaign? Are you spending adequate money on media campaigns in these particular markets? That's the other side of the coin. What do your students say to you about politics? Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, finish your thought. Here's another thing, Joan. We have to look at how how much money is lacking in the uh, RNC right now. Donald Trump's spending money on lawsuits. He's spending money on legal fees. And so the, the news is getting out that he doesn't have money to spend on television and on radio. So we're going to see how that how that pans out as we get closer to November. But if you don't see a bombardment of Donald Trump commercials on television and on the Internet, you know, June, July, August, uh, you'll know where that tide is going. I'm sorry for uh, interrupting you. No, You're asking okay. about my students. Yeah, I was just I'm always curious when I talk to somebody who teaches at the college level, um, how politically aware or invested their students are or aren't. And if there are things they care about, what are those things? Well, for one thing, we're in a blue state. And so I think that alone makes a difference. Another thing is, as it pertains to my students, 
Chicago State University students are heavily engaged in the political process, and they're very good at deciphering, you know, what truth is, what truthiness is, and what's just flat out false. Uh, the engagement, I think, will be high for students and for young people, sub 25, sub 22, uh, when we get closer to the fall. And I think that will be um, evident, of course, in Illinois. We'll just see if it's evident in other places around the country. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you think? Do you think um, that it is going to be a Trump-Biden matchup? And do you think Biden will win? And what if there's a, a no-labels candidate? What about RFK Jr.? Um, wh- you know, will, could that potentially throw things into disarray? I'm hoping third parties will be a non-factor. I think that I would hope that the American public is smart enough to not go for that okie doke on the Republican or Democratic side. Uh, I think that the I think that the as we get closer to the election, the numbers will be overwhelming uh, for Democrats because of the pain that could that could come in the event of another Trump presidency. I don't believe those offshoots, third parties, or uh, the Kennedys of the world, or the Cornell Wests of the world will uh, will be a factor in the least. I really don't. Really? Mm-hmm. Well, you no, know. I, 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 I really don't. I don't think they'll peel that much away. And I think that voters who are who could potentially vote for a peel-off candidate weren't going to vote at all, or if they say, I'm voting for Cornell West or for Kennedy, they may not even go to the ballot box to vote for that candidate. I, I really don't think that's going to be a factor. That's, um, that's very interesting to hear, because um, there are a lot of people who are concerned that if no labels gets off the ground and gets on the ballot, It could, um, especially in states with smaller populations, it could really do some damage to Joe Biden. There seems to be a a question up in the air as to whether RFK Jr. will damage Biden or Trump more. Um, But I guess we'll just have to see how that plays out. Um, Go ahead. It's all going to boil down to those uh, so-called states that can be considered to be purple. You know, if there's a if there's a state or two in there that that isn't totally loyal to the Democratic or Republican Party, then, yes, you're absolutely right. It's a possibility that a third party could cause some damage in those areas. But I believe that both parties will spend ridiculous sums of money in those states that they feel are winnable. You know, the, the states that are. Red states are going to be red states. The blue states are going to be blue states. But when you start looking at, you know, Arizona, Colorado, California, when you, you know, even Texas, when you start looking at possible peelaways, um, we could see uh, that there could be some peel away from those uh, third party candidates. Interesting. Or, or or the parties may buy them out. It's like, you know, Democratic <laughs> Party or Republican Party might say, look, you know, you know, you can't win this, right? I know I can't win it. How much is it going to take? And this happens, right? How much is it going to take for you to just go away? 
and you cut them a check and you get out of there. May not be the most, uh, may not be the most ethical thing to do, but it's it's hey, sometimes you got to get rid of your enemies. Uh, a check goes a long way. Well, we are certainly not advocating any kind of illegal um, offers of, of money to candidates on that show. Hey, and John, I know, hey, Joan, Gerard, hey, you're hey, not Joan, either. Hey, <laughs> hey, hey, Joan, Joan, I only need 11,280 votes. That's all right. I need, Joan. There you <laughs> go. There you go. Oh, my goodness, Gerard. Well, I hope the upcoming election doesn't give you Uh, the material to write President Thug Part 2. But I am so happy that you were able to find the time to join us and talk on the radio, talk politics with me. It has been too long. Thank you, Joan. Just don't wear a tan suit. You might get crucified. Yes, oh my God. (laughs) Can you you look, though, think about that. The Obama era, that was what constituted a controversy. Oh, he has no respect for the office. He's wearing a tan suit. Oh, it's it's like a it's like looking back at fairy tale times. I know. So, which one would you rather have? A yeah. president wearing a tan, a president wearing a tan suit, or a president who brags about grabbing women by the genitalia? Yep. Yep. Give me a break. Hey. I'll take the tan suit. Tell me about it. Me too. Uh, professor uh, Gerard McClennan, um, author, associate professor at Chicago State University. Thank you for being here. We are going to take a break for news and be back with more after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. I am very pleased to welcome back to our radio show Jeffrey Korn. He's a former judge, advocate, general officer, director of the Center for Military Law and Policy at Texas Tech University and a co-author of some books, uh, National Security and the Constitution, National Security Law, Principles and Policy, Law in War, a concise overview. You get the idea where I'm going with this. Um, when we've had Jeffrey on before, we've gotten some real insight into the armed conflict going on in Gaza and what is happening, whether or not it is uh, uh, being conducted appropriately following the rules of engagement and um, what, if anything, needs to be done or changed. Uh, Jeffrey, a very long-winded introduction. I apologize for that. Welcome back. Thank you for having me again. Um. I'm sure, as I have, you've been following uh, what has been going on. You know, there was this uh, supposed uh, negotiation about how the hostages would be re- released, the last of them, and and what would have to happen. And, you know, they fell apart because Hamas, you know, wanted uh, a complete and total ceasefire. And basically the way the Washington Post put it, Hamas wanted a compromise that would permit Hamas to continue to exist, something that Israel has said they're not going to allow to happen. People were kind of wringing their hands over this, but uh, not having sat in on these kinds of high-level negotiations, I can only look from the outside. It seems to me whenever you begin a negotiation that one side or the other or sometimes both sides are going to ask for the world because you can always move back from that position, but 
It's hard to ask for very little and then ask for more later. Were you surprised that the negotiations seemingly came apart? No, and I don't, I'm not so sure coming apart, that's the external view. But as you know, there's very likelihood, there's a strong likelihood that there's continuing dialogue. And, and you're right. I mean, when you start a negotiation with a belligerent that you're engaged in a conflict with through intermediaries, uh, each side is going gonna, is gonna to ask or demand what they think is the maximum they could get. But they also know what their red lines are. And they also know, I think, they, they try and sense whether their opponent is in a position of strength or weakness. And if you think about um, the earlier negotiations where Hamas would say, well, we'll release 10 hostages in exchange for you know, several hundred um, Palestinians that you have convicted and are holding in jail and a uh, ceasefire for 48 hours, I think that the the kind of scope of this Hamas proposal um, would could be read and probably is read by the Israelis as an indication that they realize that the the, the, the noose is tightening on their fighters and they're they're they really need some reprieve because if they don't get it they're going to have very little left when the when the fighting stops you uh, what I'm, I'm I'm I got lost there the noose is tightening on the Israeli IDF fighters or Hamas no, no, no. on Hamas that yeah. the Isra- that the IDF is tightening the noose day by day they are basically um, closing in on strongholds where Hamas fighters are holding out. And so now suddenly Hamas's position is, well, maybe we could release all the hostages, but you have to have a uh, permanent ceasefire and withdraw all your troops from Gaza. And so I think there's a, there's a real possibility that the Israelis look at that as an indication that Hamas is in a weaker position now and they recognize it and they, they need to kind of offer more on their end, even though what they're demanding is unrealistic if you're Israel at this point. Antony Blinken, after all of this uh, did not come to fruition, said that he felt there was still space for an agreement. Is he talking about the kinds of what you're referencing here, that uh, these were just opening salvos? Well, I mean, I think that he he has almost an obligation to take that position. I mean, it wouldn't be very effective from the point of diplomacy and uh, and serving in the role as an intermediary trying to figure out or facilitate some resolution to this conflict to come out publicly and throw your hands up and say, There's, I guess. That's <laughs> oh, that's it. Too. Forget it. It's over. Yeah, Never I'm, happened. I'm Let's all go home. home. No, so, but I but he's also signaling to both sides that. Um, they may have hardline positions, but the United States wants to continue to uh, press them to think about ways to try and find some compromise. Remember, a couple of weeks ago, I think the Israelis made the offer that um, they would terminate operations if Hamas would uh, disarm and the Hamas leadership could could leave Gaza uh, to some safe haven. Uh, and Hamas rejected it. Um, so it's very clear that what Hamas is after is the ability to 
claim victory in the end. And as I said the last time you had me on, victory for Hamas is not defeating the Israeli Defense Forces in battle. Victory for Hamas is to be standing when the when the mm. fighting stops, when the Israelis withdraw with a um, with an actual and, per- and perceived status as still having control of at least part of the Gaza Strip. And um, and so that's what they're after. And and that's why the they're playing on the Israeli public's increasing demand for release of the the surviving hostages. We, we, we think now that the Israelis have said they think about 30 percent of them are probably dead already, oh. unfortunately. But they they want to play on that in order to figure out some way where they can survive this onslaught, because I think that their expectation that international pressure would force Israel to terminate the operation prematurely has has failed. So now what do they have left to offer? And the answer is, you know, they they they, made, they thought they would get something out of the International Court of Justice. They didn't get what they wanted. They thought international pressure would force Israel to terminate operations. And Israel has withstood um, that barrage, if you will. And so all they have left now, I think, is to play on the hostages, which is is just another manifestation of how how immoral the entire thing is, that they've got these people and they're using them as human pawns. And as as they're doing it, they're continuing to place the lives of their own population in great uh, jeopardy and, and increase the suffering. So if, um, if that is where things stand at this moment in time, it doesn't seem like there's any path forward because is, you know, Netanyahu, love him or hate him, has made it clear from day one that the de- complete and utter defeat of Hamas is, is what they're after, is, is the goal, is the end game. And you say, you know, Hamas is looking at this like, oh, crap, how can we possibly, what can we do to survive? How can, how can we survive? Those two things don't seem like they will ever fit together. So what does that mean? Well, a, cu- a couple of um, comments in response. First off, I would suspect that the, the Israeli military, the commanders leading this campaign, for them, this is all noise. It's background noise. They're focused on accomplishing their, their operational mission, which is to continue to clear areas of Gaza that Hamas fighters have used as safe havens. I was in a briefing the other day with a couple of retired Israeli generals, and they were saying that the, um, the word they're getting from the Israeli Defense Force is that the Hamas fighters are still functioning. They're still effective, but they're they're more dispersed now. They're they're not fighting as units now. They're fighting more as guerrilla tactics. And interestingly, they're having more of them surrender. So the, I think on the ground, the perception probably is keep your foot on the gas pedal, mm-hmm. keep pressing the end. Um, because for the Israeli defense forces, there is an end state. And that end state is that Hamas's military capability is rendered ineffective. They're combat ineffective. They're destroyed as a capable military opponent. Then the really hard questions start to arise. 
which is what does the day after look like in Gaza? Who's going to govern it? Who's going to administer it? Who's going to deal with the reconstruction? The, you know, once the fighting ends, assuming that happens in the next several months, and once the IDF is confident that they've destroyed the military capability of Hamas, there's going to be a massive influx of humanitarian aid. Who's going to manage that? Who's going to distribute it? These are the really, really hard questions. They're not questions that, you know, a division commander is is pondering right now mm-hmm. because the military commanders are focused on the tactical battle and closing with and destroying their combat enemy. But long term, these are, I think, some of the hardest questions. And in a way, um, the, con- the continued prosecution of the combat operation is uh, kind of pushing these questions off down the road a little bit. But. I don't know what the answers are to all that, and I don't think the government of Israel has really come out. And and we know that there's internal conflict now within the government and within the society over whether we should Israel should encourage resettlement, which I personally think would be a catastrophe. Um, but but we know that there are people on the right in Israel that are starting to say that that's the solution. You have hardcore right wing ministers that are have advocated for uh, Palestinians to basically leave the Gaza Strip. What happens after the battle is really complicated. But in terms of defeating Hamas's military wing, I think the Israelis now see that as, a, as actually a viable um, operational objective. Interesting. Um, Jeffrey Korn, we need to take a break. Uh, Jeffrey Korn is the director of the Center for Military Law and Policy at Texas Tech University. We're going to be back with more right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Professor Jeffrey Korn is the director of the Center for Military Law and Policy at Texas Tech University and an international expert on the rules of war. And we have been talking about the situation in Gaza. Uh, Jeffrey, one of the experts I think I was seeing on cable news was talking about this whole situation, and they said that they thought it would be a smart PR move for the government of Israel as they progressively destroy Gaza and move further and further south to maybe start already rebuilding some of what has been destroyed, you know, bringing in resources to help um, you know, put up some of those apartment buildings that got um, utterly and completely destroyed. What do you think of that idea? Well, first off, I think there's been underreporting of the efforts that the Israeli military has already made to facilitate humanitarian assistance. I mean, this has been a consistent um, uh, theme in in the media. The 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 that the Gazan population is on the brink of catastrophe. I would say that when you have civilians suffering in an area of war, there is a legal obligation, and but there's also a moral obligation. And you can never do enough. I mean, you, you do what you feasibly can, but you should always be thinking, is there more I can do? So I, I would say it's not just a PR move, right? There's, there's a moral imperative here. And I think Israeli commanders owe it to their subordinates to demonstrate to them 
that there's no inconsistency with with being um, violent and decisive when fighting your enemy, but being humane when dealing with the civilian population. And so if there are things we can do to ease the suffering, to get things back in order, then we should be thinking about doing them. There's also a very complicated question of if and when Israel assumes obligations as what's called an occupying power. Now, the notion of occupation has a really negative connotation because we associate it with the West Bank and and the continued presence of Israelis. But under international law, the, the concept of belligerent occupation is not a negative concept. It's It is the very essence of the Fourth Geneva Convention, which was created after World War II, and it's it's designed to ensure that a military power that displaces local government and takes over an area takes care of the population. I mean, it's it's a humanitarian obligation, and so there may there may actually be credible arguments that this is not just a a PR or a moral imperative, that there's a legal obligation at some point for you to start to provide essential services, food, medicine, um, care for the elderly, the sick, and the children. This is what occupation is about. So I I think that um, it's politically challenging when you're in an area where that has been the, the kind of hotbed of the of the enemy that's inflicted substantial suffering. But I'm reminded of a conference I went to several years ago in Israel after the 2020 conflict. And I listened to the retired chief of staff of the Israeli military. That's the top Israeli general whose mother was a survivor of the London Blitz who lived in down near the border with Gaza. And he t- he told us, he said, when the, when Hamas started firing rockets, I called my mother, who's 90 years old, and I said, Mom, are you in the fallout shelter? And she said, no. And I said, Mom, you got to get to the fallout shelter. She said, why? I'm 90 years old. I survived the London Blitz. If something happens to me, that's it. So stop worrying about me and do your job. And then he said, she told me on the phone, I want you to promise me you'll do two things. I want you to promise me that you'll fight the enemy and take care of the civilians. That's what his 90-year-old mother said. Wow. And he said, he said, for me, as the commander of the IDF, that, that reflected the type of kind of moral warrior code that I want my subordinates to embrace. It doesn't always work. It's a very difficult challenge for combat leaders to take young men and women into combat, to make them aggressive, to, to train them to overcome the natural aversion to taking life and at the same time be able to flick a switch and be humane. But it is the mark of a truly professional military. And it's what the IDF should be demanding of of itself and what Israel should be expecting of its own forces. There have been some reports about investigations into misconduct within the ranks of the IDF. Can you talk about that? Sure. This is very, very important. So the the reports indicate that the military advocate general, that's the top military lawyer in Israel, a, a, a three-star general, a woman, um, directed or green-lighted, if you will, 
the opening of preliminary criminal investigations into uh, allegations of misconduct by IDF personnel. And if you remember when we spoke last time, I made the point that no military is perfect. Mistakes happen. And sometimes uh, subordinates do things that they shouldn't do that are that are, in fact, illegal. As you noted, I was a judge advocate officer in the U.S. Army. It's it's never fun or kind of rewarding to have to investigate and potentially punish an American service member who's volunteered to go to war. But when they break the rules, if you don't do that, what you're doing is you are you are sending a message of tolerance. So mm-hmm. it's very important, very important that the IDF do credible, transparent and thorough investigations of these incidents, some of which have been reported in the news. For example, there was a big New York Times uh, expose about detainee abuse. Well, you know, I read the report. I was dubious about some of the sources, but I certainly think it warrants uh, looking into. And if, uh, like any other criminal investigation, if the preliminary investigation shows that there's credible evidence that members of the organization violated the rules of war or the rules of engagement, then there has to be disciplinary action. And, you know, you can, you can be understanding of, the, of the, the intensity of combat and the burden that these men and women are under, but it doesn't excuse violating the law. And, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, Hamas will never do this. We know this. They could care less. But if you're an institution that claims to um, pride itself on a military institution that prides itself on professionalism, part of professionalism is drawing lines and holding people accountable when they cross those lines. um, You say this investigation has been opened. How would we expect it to proceed? When would we expect to have some kind of resolution? Well, I mean, that's very difficult to answer because you'd have to know what the allegation was, where the witnesses were, where the evidence was located. It's like anything else. But normally what would happen is there would be a preliminary inquiry by the military command. And then if they think that there's a reasonable basis for um, transforming it into a criminal investigation, they would turn it over to criminal investigators who would then move forward with that. And then ultimately the judge advocate general would decide whether or not to bring charges. And in that regard, it's, it's, it's probably natural for listeners to think, well, how can that ever happen? Because if you're the judge advocate general, you're in uniform and you work for the military and, and you're going to do whatever the, the generals want you to do. In fact, the Israeli military justice system is more independent than the U S system because that that military advocate general, that three-star general that runs the Israeli military legal corps, she does not work for the chief of the defense forces. She reports to the attorney general of the nation. So, so the idea behind that is to shield the impartiality of these investigations from improper influence by the, the command whose subordinates may be involved in the misconduct. And it's a very important kind of barrier that has been put in place in Israel 
in order to ensure the integrity of these investigations. And any of your listeners, by the way, they, there's a lot of information that the Israeli Defense Force has put on the web on their investigatory processes, how it works, uh, and, and they'll be forthcoming with information regarding these investigations when they're able to provide it. I'm talking to Professor Jeffrey Korn. We are talking about the situation in Gaza. We're going to take a break, but when we come back, we're going to touch on something that he mentioned a couple of times in our talk so far. Once the dust settles, who governs Gaza and what does that look like? We'll be back with more after this. Now back to Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Professor Jeffrey Korn is the director of the Center for Military Law and Policy at Texas Tech University and an expert on the rules of war. We have been talking to him from time to time about the situation in Gaza, and he said something that I think we should talk about a little bit more. What happens when this is over? What happens when the dust starts to settle? How, what does Gaza look like? Who lives there? Who's in charge? Well, I mean, on, honestly, if I had the answer to those questions, uh, I'd, I'd be writing a book about them already. I mean, this is incredibly complicated. Well, please at least tell I, me I, that there are people yeah. within the Israeli government that are that are thinking about these things, that are putting together some ideas or, or heaven forbid, a framework. Well, let's hope so. But I will tell you... <laughs> From my own experience in, in the U.S. military, um, we have our own uh, examples of being very focused on, the, on what we might call the immediate battle and not giving enough attention to the day after. I mean, if you think about what happened in Iraq after we toppled the uh, Saddam Hussein regime, and even on a very smaller scale, because it was something that was closer to my experience, when we invaded Panama in 1989 and and kicked General Nor brought General Noriega back for prosecution, there had been no real planning on what happens when we decapitate the governing authority. Now I think that the Israelis, because of their experience in these type situations, are going to be more focused on what comes next. The problem I think they have is it's an in, it's it's not in a sense, as easy a question to answer as the military question. The military question is, find the enemy's capability and decapitate it, and then close with the enemy and destroy his, his combat capability. But the question of what happens in Gaza after you do that is intensely political. And, and so um, you see these different uh, voices coming out of the cabinet in Israel uh, about resettling, uh, Netanyahu saying that uh, he, he's not going to, I think the comment was that the, the Palestinian Authority will never govern Gaza or something to that effect. Um, you have Hamas trying to negotiate some capability to stay there and have some governing control. I don't know what the solution is. I think what it means in in reality is that the military probably knows that as much as it doesn't like the idea, it's going to be stuck uh, managing the, the territory for at least the indefinite future. And, in, and that's why I said the, the issue of have they become an occupying power 
then then gets uh, resurrected by that reality. But who else is what what are the Israelis going to do? Are they just going to one day wake up and say, "Okay, everybody comes home and leave a vacuum? If you do that, you're just inviting Hamas or maybe even worse, the devil you don't know to fill that vacuum. I mean, one of the realities about the situation between Israel and, and Hamas up until October 7th has almost been this odd situation where as bad as Hamas was, at least Israel knew it and knew how to deal with it, or so they thought. And maybe if they completely get rid of it, something worse comes in behind it. We don't know. Um, so I think the immediate future uh, is going to create an inevitable requirement that the Israelis manage the, the, the territory until some viable alternative is proposed and available. That's not Hamas. That's not some other radical uh, anti-Israeli group. And, and where that is, we don't know. And, and, and by the way, it's not just a dilemma in Gaza right now. It's, it's an increasing dilemma in the West Bank for the Israelis. I mean, their view is we don't have a credible partner to negotiate some type of solution with. And what does that do? That emboldens the hardliners on the right to say, you see, we've told you forever that there's no point in trying to negotiate some type of Palestinian state. And ultimately, I think that's tragic because I think it's it's contrary to Israel's long term interest and viability to be stuck reoccupying Gaza. Netanyahu, Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister, has said very clearly that he is not a fan of this idea of a two state solution. You mentioned being in communication with some retired Israeli generals. Is your sense that that is the predominant feeling in Israel or are there is there a significant group that would be willing to live with a two state solution? Well, look, I look, I think we have to acknowledge and again, I'm a little bit out of my lane here because it's not really a military issue. But I think we just have to acknowledge the political reality that Netanyahu faces. I mean, he he gained he regained power by a very slim margin by appealing to the far right uh, parties in, in, a, in, in with the ability to form a coalition government and his main claim to fame for the past, what, 15 to 20 years, has been, I'm the guy who can keep Israel safe. Mm-hmm. Well, he can't claim that anymore right. because the failure of October 7th falls at his feet, ultimately. So what's left? What's left to for him to retain the support of these kind of ultra-nationalist political parties in Israel? It's to move in the direction of their view of the future which is what they call a one-state solution. And, and their vision is that there's never going to be a Palestinian state. We're just going to perpetuate kind of the Oslo uh, arrangement, which is it's all part of Israel, but you're going to have kind of governing or autonomy in the areas that you control. But ultimately, we have the, 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 the final say, the ability to intervene for security purposes, it's and if you're if you're Palestinian, 
or if you are on the the the, the left in Israel, you know the the opposition side, you see that as a permanent status of occupation, which is incompatible. So I'm biased because the friends that I have that have served in the Israeli military, believe it or not, because they've interacted so extensively over their careers with Palestinians, have operated in the West Bank. Many of them were in Gaza before the withdrawal back in the early 2000s. They have a a strong sympathy for the Palestinian people. They believe that most Palestinians and most Israelis want the same thing, which is to be able to raise their families in peace and to not worry that when you celebrate the birth of a new child, that 18 years later, that child is going to be given a a firearm and sent off to battle. Like, when is this ever going to end? So I'm biased. I I think most Israelis, most, not all, But most Israelis, if they believe there could be a viable governing entity for the West Bank and Gaza that would guarantee kind of a a permanent end to this ongoing conflict, they'd be all for a two-state solution. The problem is that the Palestinian Authority has been so inept in its own function and as a partner that day by day it makes people who— 10 years ago were huge proponents of a two-state solution start to lose faith in that as an option. And then what's left? What's Mm -hmm. left is a Netanyahu view. And so the Israelis and the Palestinians, they have to figure out some way of identifying and elevating leaders of the Palestinian people that have a vision of the future that doesn't involve this perpetual conflict. When uh, we come back from this next break, Professor Korn, I would like to talk to you. Uh, When last we spoke, that's when the big genocide case was being heard by the International Court of Justice. And I want to talk to you about fallout since then. You you referenced it earlier, but I want to go back to that. Uh, We will be right back after this. Don't turn that dial. A dangerous mistake to make. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. Professor Jeffrey Korn is a director of the Center for Military Law and Policy at Texas Tech University. One of the many books he's uh, co-authored is The War on Terror and the Laws of War, a Military Perspective. We spoke in an earlier conversation, when the uh, accusations of genocide were being brought by South Africa against Israel, uh, you referenced earlier in our conversation, uh, Professor Korn, that maybe Hamas thought that there would be greater public outcry and pressure put on Israel because of that process, um, something that doesn't seem to have happened What, if anything, is the fallout from that? Well, first off, the the main objective that South Africa sought was uh, essentially what a what a regular kind of American lawyer would call a preliminary injunction. Uh, The the International Court of Justice calls it preliminary measures. And it basically is a, a concept where if you can show a credible basis that you'll win the ultimate um, case, you should be entitled to preliminary injunction 
in the form of a ceasefire. And the court rejected that. Um, And that was a huge win for Israel, because had the court granted that request for a preliminary measure in the form of a ceasefire, Israel would not have complied with it, and it would have created a diplomatic nightmare for them. And it would have created a nightmare for the United States as well, because uh, other members of the Security Council would have certainly at that point um, brought another resolution demanding compliance with the judgment. What the court rejected, which Israel requested, was to dismiss the case outright. Israel uh, argued that the court lacked jurisdiction because there was not a dispute between South Africa and Israel under the Genocide Convention. That's how the court uh, established its jurisdiction, and the court concluded there was a dispute, which means the case is ongoing. All the court basically said to Israel was, continue to do what you say you've been doing, which is respect the Genocide Convention and not uh, inflict death or injury for the purpose of destroying uh, an ethnic or religious group in whole or in part. But Israel has taken the position that that they've been complying with that obligation all along. So it was kind of an odd ruling. It's, It's as if you go into court and ask for a preliminary injunction against your neighbor And the court says, we're not going to grant the injunction, but we're going to remind you to continue to follow the law. Okay, (laughs) we got it. The the problem is for Israel, and I don't, maybe it's not a problem, because you asked about investigating these alleged, these allegations of misconduct by their forces and issues related to what happens in Gaza after the fighting stops. Israel has to periodically report back to the court on measures it's taking to ensure that it's complying with its obligations under the Genocide Convention. So some of these these issues that you brought up are relevant to that. I mean, they're in a better position with the court when they go back and say, look, we were made aware of incidents of misconduct by our soldiers, and here's what we're doing to investigate mm-hmm. and, and discipline them. Or we recognize that there's widespread suffering in Gaza from the conflict, Here's what we're doing to ameliorate that suffering. So in a way, maybe that's not so much a negative thing. Maybe it's a good thing that it it increases the incentive, if you will, for the Israelis uh, to be more forward-leaning on their efforts to mitigate the human suffering of Gaza. It also, I think, if you're Benjamin Netanyahu, you know, one of the accusations was not just that they're committing genocide, but that there were members of the government that were inciting it. Because, some, because of some of the bombastic statements that were coming out of lower-level ministers. And I think it says to Benjamin Netanyahu, you have to clamp down on this kind of ultra-nationalist rhetoric. Because if you don't, then South Africa is going to continue to use that rhetoric as evidence that there are members of your government that are actually trying to incite genocide. So the, the case will continue. It'll take a long time to resolve. I think in the end, Israel is going to to win it decisively, that the court is going to reject the argument that they engaged in genocide. But it is it, it, the mere fact that the court accepted jurisdiction to critique Israel under the Genocide Convention, that in and of itself has a negative effect on Israel's uh, you know, claim of being a legitimate member 
of the international community. It's also terribly hypocritical because all around Israel, there's actual genocide going on in Syria, in Sudan, uh, to a certain extent in Iraq, and nobody's ever investigated that. But when, again, that is the kind of burden of being uh, a nation that, that holds itself out as a, as a highly evolved democracy committed to the rule of law and high-level values. This is the, the consequence you have to endure, even though there's a hypocrisy that other states seem to get away with much more egregious misconduct. Why do those other states get a pass, in your opinion? Well, well I mean, it, it, you know, it's, it's an interesting question. There have been some experts that have pondered whether Israel should now bring a case against South Africa based on the very clear evidence that South Africa has had a very cozy relationship with Hamas over the years. So has South Africa encouraged genocide? I mean, I think that would be a mistake. It would look like it wasn't. It was motivated as kind of a, a vindictive ploy. I mean, the reason states get away with widespread violations of international law, war crimes, crimes against humanity, genocide, is because in the end, the international community is just a group of nations, and they're the ones that have to have the resolve to stand up to this. I mean. This is the debate that's going on in the Senate today over funding for Ukraine. Um, my, my younger brother was a high-level diplomat in Russia for many, many years, and he's retired now, and he is an ardent advocate for supporting Ukraine because he, he's known Putin from when he was the, the mayor of St. Petersburg. You know, they called it the St. Petersburg Mafia. And he understands that that our support for this government in Ukraine, this effort to resist Russian aggression, is so important for our long-term national security. In the end, states get away with violations of international law because other states don't have the will to stand up to it and stop it. And so one of the ironies of this genocide case is, you know, you have the world coming down on Israel as if Israel is public enemy number one in the, um, in the, the realm of, of respect for international law, when in fact it's anything but. And there was a recent op-ed by an arm, a former Army major who wrote a book on urban warfare in Newsweek where he said, you know, I've been studying this my whole military career. I've never seen an urban battle executed with greater respect for international law than what I'm seeing in Israel. But the narrative is completely opposite. What we should be doing is really focusing on the real public enemies of international law. And until the international community is willing to do that, then tyrants will continue to be tyrants and take anything that they can get. Well, it's not exactly... (laughs) It's not exactly what I wanted to hear, but... You make a lot of sense. Um, One thing that's even more or more unpleasant, you mentioned much earlier in our talk today that in with some of the people you have spoken to who are more up on what's going on in the area, that there is a belief that a certain percentage of the hostages are dead 
how does that kind of intelligence come about? How well, reliable I mean, is that idea? I think the Israelis historically, particularly in the areas like Gaza and the West Bank, have had very, very reliable human intelligence sources. Most of this type of information comes from what intelligence experts call human, human intelligence, because you're not going to be able to do aerial surveillance and look through a tunnel. And, and some of it may come from communications interception, where they're listening to Hamas talking about what's going on with hostages and not letting on that that's how they're finding out about it. But my guess is this is coming from, from sources within, within these organizations well, that are providing information. Well, if that's the case, though, Israel. Jeffrey, if, if this is human intelligence and these people um, have this information, doesn't it follow that they would then know where the hostages were being held and there could be some kind of rescue mission? Oh, I don't I don't think so. Not necessarily. You know, I, I started my career as an army intelligence officer. And and what you do to protect sensitive information is not only do you restrict who has access to the information, you compartmentalize your operation. So, for example, there may be people talking about um, the fact you may have a source that can tell you that I was in a meeting and I and I heard them talk about a number of hostages that were dead, but the people in that meeting have nothing to do with where they're being held. And I think if the Israelis knew where they were being held, if they thought they had credible, even if they were, if it was uncertain intelligence, then they definitely would be launching raids to try and rescue them. But you, it, it's very common when you're gathering intelligence, particularly from human sources. I mean, this is just like when a police officer uses a snitch, right? I mean, sometimes they know some things, but they don't know everything. Yeah. And, and, and maybe that's where this is coming from. It could also just be an estimate as well, based on the number of hostages that they know have already been killed. They could be estimating, but um, I, I mean, I think from inception, most people have recognized that it's probably um, – wildly optimistic to expect that all these people are going to come back alive. But keeping them alive at this point, that's their big bargaining chip. So even if they weren't taking care of them before, wouldn't they start taking care of the ones who are still alive now? Oh, I don't I don't think the Israelis have suggested that uh, the casualties have been deliberate on the part of Hamas. I don't think Hamas is executing hostages for exactly the reason you say. But but one of the key military objectives Israel has had from the beginning of this operation is preventing people from leaving Gaza, because that would be an even more complicated scenario. If Hamas was able to smuggle hostages out, mm-hmm. then where do they? So they're in the midst of a combat environment. So my guess is that if there have been hostages that have been killed, either they died as a result of lack of access to vital you know, medical care or they're, they're casualties of the combat operations. 
Jeffrey Korn, it is always so informative and enlightening. Clearly, Jeffrey, I know nothing about how any of this works or the international laws or how a successful military functions. And I really appreciate you educating me and my listeners on this. Thank you for being here. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. Have a great day. You too. That's going to do it for me today. Driving at home with the lovely Ms. Vasquez is next. I will see you tomorrow at 2 o'clock, and um, it's going to be an interesting day. Well, aren't they all? (laughs) Don't we wish we'd have a boring one? Yes, we do. Uh, Anyway, stay safe, my friends. Have a great evening. Good night.